welcome everybody back into Down the Line. As always, I'm your host, Carson Brabber, and as I am recording this, we are sitting just a few hours away from the beginning of the 2022 Australian Open. So, what better time to do the first pod of the year than right now? I certainly can't think of one. And uh, I think that obviously, as excited as we all are for some tennis, the tennis itself has definitely not been the primary focus of the dialogue surrounding the Australian Open up to this point. Nor should it have been, because obviously the more important, more captivating, certainly on a worldwide scale, narrative has been that of Novak Djokovic's efforts to get into Australia and then ultimately the decision that came down recently that he had to be deported. And uh, I think that I've been pretty open previously on this podcast about how, while I try to remain as objective as I can, Novak Djokovic has been, throughout the entirety of my life, my favorite athlete on the planet and a guy who I have felt immensely connected to and we're talking from the age of five years old. I mean, I basically picked a guy out of a hat and then he went on this monumental, unbelievable David Goliath story where he overcomes, you know, the two greatest players of all time and ends up, in my opinion, surpassing on the court what they have ever done. And I've also defended oftentimes his conduct on court and talked about how I don't have interest in somebody preserving a perfect image because that doesn't feel authentic to me. And I don't hold it against people if they get upset and if they let us see that range of emotions. And uh, I've also defended some of his off-court stuff, like the PTPA, founding another association, which I honestly don't know why that had to be defended. I thought that that was pretty obviously a good thing for the sport. Even if maybe the organization wasn't always perfect, he was fighting for people who needed better representation and deserve to be treated better than they are currently by the tennis tours. So oftentimes, although he has been consistently controversial over the last couple years, I mean, Lord knows that that is the truth. I would say I have probably more often than the average person found myself on the side of Djokovic. And I don't think that this saga has changed retroactively any of my stances on any of those issues. But uh, what I will say is that some of the stuff that has come out through this entire process is completely indefensible. And obviously his unvaccinated status has been a point of conflict for some time. And he has at various points throughout the pandemic acted recklessly before, obviously starting up the Adria tour way back in 2020, pretty early on and not exercising much caution with that at all. And there was obviously the shots of him and some of the other players out partying maskless. And then that got shut down. And he has talked about alternative approaches to building immunity to COVID or to fighting off COVID that are not substantiated by the solid science that we have. All these things that have been problematic and controversial but him being unvaccinated alone and applying to get into the Australian Open following the proper procedures and successfully being granted an exemption, like, I definitely think it's the wrong decision to be unvaccinated. I think it's a bad decision. But I also understand from a pragmatic standpoint, the perspective that you want to have the best player on the planet and the guy who has performed as well at your tournament 
as anybody has in any slam ever outside of Rafa at the French. And it just makes for a higher quality product. And honestly, given that he did recently have COVID and would therefore have higher immunity than obviously a typical unvaccinated person, I think there's a strong case to be made that an exemption would have been justified because at the end of the day, yes, obviously the Omicron variant has really complicated and made things worse as far as case numbers around the globe. And so that throws a little bit of a wrench into things. But he is one individual who's going to be just naturally socially distanced by the nature of his sport and all these things that make you think, okay, for the sake of the quality of the tournament, could you justify that? I think so. And talked about that even back in, I believe it was December, when the report started to surface that, oh, maybe Australia was actually going to consider going back on their vaccine mandate or make exceptions for certain players. So him being unvaccinated, trying to get into the tournament, do I think he is on the wrong side of things being unvaccinated? Yes. But do I have an issue with him trying to get into the tournament? I do not. And uh, I do think it's weird that the federal government didn't intervene earlier and that he was obviously able to fly into the country before this became an issue. I feel like they could have obviously gotten ahead of it and just asserted their authority sooner. But regardless, they have the authority to do that, obviously. And there are bigger things than tennis. And I don't think that you can really object to that decision. But like I said, I don't think that the actual specifics of Djokovic's attempt to enter Australia or the decision to come out of that are the most important things here in a sense. I mean, obviously, the implications are most significant, right? Because he is no longer in the tournament and maybe facing a three-year ban from entering Australia, period. Now, they can make an exception to that if they demonstrate that there is a sufficient national interest in having Novak Djokovic there, which it sounds like they very well may be able to do. If they can't, this is a completely career-altering moment here. Like, when you are trying to become the greatest player of all time and you are unable to compete in your best tournament for three consecutive years, while at this point he's still nearly at the apex of his powers and would be the overwhelming favorite and is the best player on the planet. I mean, we are literally talking about shaking up the balance of tennis history there. So that would be major, but by far the most disappointing and just really saddening thing about this to me is that while he was still in Serbia, he took a COVID test on December 16th according to the Institute of Public Health, got a positive result that night. Then the next day, went out to a charity event in Belgrade and was out there maskless and was with a bunch of people and claimed that he didn't get his PCR results until after the event, which I suppose could be true, but doesn't seem likely to me if the government is saying that it was issued the night prior, which... I mean, just completely inexcusable. I don't even know if reckless is an appropriate word. Just mind-boggling disregard for public health. And obviously, that just has to be rooted in some belief that the virus is insignificant. Because, you know, nobody is doing that if they think they're actually putting other people in danger. And that would just be reflective of kind of a detachment from reality at this point. And obviously that's a bit more prevalent than you might expect or hope for today, but really, really disappointing to see from one of the world's great athletes. 
And then, regardless, the next day, by his own admission, attended a photo shoot in an interview with a pair of journalists while knowing that he was positive for COVID. So, I mean, again, it's just mind-boggling. And uh, it has obviously made him public enemy number one, and uh, fairly so. I mean, it's as bad of a COVID decision as I can think of any prominent athlete publicly making, and that's obviously on the heels of the previous controversies, but there's never been anything this black and white. Since the beginning of the pandemic, nothing has ever been as black and white as if you test positive for the virus, you quarantine. And that is how you, as effectively as possible, prevent the spread, obviously. So to neglect that is just awful and is indefensible. And again, I think it's easy for a lot of people to make him the world's biggest villain because people in the tennis community have not liked him for a long time, and I've talked about the reasons for that previously, a lot of which, in my opinion, have been driven by the fact that there was an established order. It was sort of a two-party system, if you will, Rafa and Fed, and everybody loved them, and then in came this disruptor who uh, was suddenly beating those guys repeatedly, and people didn't know how to grapple with it, and there wasn't a portion of the fan base that remained to be dedicated to Djokovic, and then I think the people have often been overreactionary to some of his emotional stuff on court and all that. And then if you look at the non-tennis community, I mean, what has his reputation been for the last two years? It's been uh, tantrums and <laughs> hitting lines people in the throat with a ball and being reckless and unvaccinated during a pandemic. So I think it's probably as easy for most people to turn and just heap blame and criticism on him as it is for them to do to any athlete on the planet. Like, he is a villain. And uh, I think that it's a very different experience for me because of what I've talked about, where he has been my favorite athlete of all time. But there's really, I don't think, any doubt about how to react to this situation. I mean, if you want to take a totally objective stance and you think it's unfair that he was granted an exemption and then denied that, I suppose you are entitled to that opinion. But I really feel like when you look at the complete disregard for a positive test, that sort of negates everything else. And yeah, maybe that shouldn't factor into the specifics of this decision. And I don't know that it did. And really, I don't care, I guess is my point. Like, that's not the most important thing here. It's that an objectively really bad decision was made by Novak Djokovic. So just speaking from my personal perspective, is this going to change what he has represented to me throughout my life? I don't think it is. And that may sound crazy to some people, but I think that often when you're looking at athletes or any I guess, public figure role model, they mean something to you symbolically. And obviously, you don't know these people. And I couldn't tell you with 100% certainty if any celebrity on the planet is a good person or a bad person. I mean, you can make judgments based on the information available and generally pretty good ones. But at the end of the day, 
you are interpreting a life and it probably means way more to you than it should. And I'm obviously not talking about all public figures, but if you have somebody who is a hero to you, like the person who you grow up with and think, if I could meet anybody on the planet, you know, it would be that person or they just inspire you or you identify with them in whatever way. I just think that the idea of that person is actually more meaningful than who they really are. Because I guess I just don't think anybody has a moral obligation to uh, view a public figure as exactly who they really are. Because again, we don't know. And you probably don't want to be out there promoting and rooting for O.J. Simpson or attending the R. Kelly fan club meetings. And you most certainly undeniably do not want to be the one defending their actions. And that's where you can cross a line because you just can't be that invested. And I also obviously would not compare what Novak Djokovic has done here to like truly atrocious crimes, which is what I'm talking about with some of these other people. But I guess my point is that if somebody means so much to you personally, the idea of them, I should say, then maybe it's just too hard to like stop pulling for them or stop enjoying their content. And I don't think that you're morally obligated to do that because I just don't. I mean, it's your own individual experience and uh, it's kind of just whatever is authentic to you. So it's weird because I have definitely lionized Novak Djokovic throughout my entire life and thought about on several occasions how devastating it's going to be for me when he retires and how I would like to give tribute to him. And obviously I've consistently dedicated myself to making sure that we do acknowledge his greatness just objectively, because I do think it's honestly unrivaled in the history of this sport, but I've also gone beyond the objectivity and talked about, you know, what he does represent to me as a champion and as a fighter and as a personality on the court and everything that he overcame in his young life and uh, I certainly do think that he's still done a lot of good in the world but again it's just tough when you start trying to legislate that stuff from our perspective because we just really don't know about the content of anyone's character and uh, there are things that will tip you off certainly to particular aspects of it but I guess what I'm saying is after holding a belief about a person for 15 years of my life or at least the version of that person that I have refined in my mind and chosen to embrace I just don't think things are going to change all that much for me on a personal level so that was probably a little bit long-winded there and uh, I guess a decent amount of that was personal reflection too but again I feel like I'm in a unique position here because there's not a lot of massive Novak Djokovic fans on the planet in the scheme of things compared to the other members of the big three and really overwhelmingly I would say the general population feels so negatively about him and even Novak Djokovic fans I don't think many of them he was their first favorite athlete effectively or their favorite player before he ever got to be world number one or any of these things like that where he has just meant so much to me throughout my life so I wanted to reflect on all that and I hope that that was interesting so 
What this does mean in a tennis context is that obviously there is a huge opportunity for the rest of the draw if you're looking at the men's side. And Matteo Berrettini now has a section to himself, basically. Only top eight seed in that quarter of the draw now. So that's a pretty good opportunity for a guy who played some really great tennis last year. Could meet with Alcaraz in the third round, which I would say look out for. I mean, if he were able to capitalize on this, that would be pretty thrilling. You also have Sebastian Corda up in that section, another young guy who could maybe make some noise. He's got a tough first rounder against Cam Nori, so I don't know if he's getting out of that one. But I'm very intrigued by how open that section is because the rest of it, I mean, if you look at the top eight seeds represented in each quarter, it's Rafan Zverev in the second quarter, which I think is pretty loaded right there between those two. And then you have Tsitsipas, Rud, and then Medvedev, Rublev, which is another really strong one. So I really feel like it's mostly going to be the usual suspects when all is said and done here. And uh, I'm not going to go as in-depth with the preview here as normal, I guess, just because I took so much time on that Djokovic stuff. My actual pick for the final here is Medvedev over Rafa. I think that these are probably the two best players in the draw on hard in a best-of-five format. I understand what Zverev has done as of late and had a really phenomenal finish to last year. But I just think when it comes to best-of-five in a Grand Slam setting against Rafa, I'm not going to bet on him, even if Rafa obviously is coming off of injury and wasn't always perfect last year. I'm going to bet on him. And then Medvedev, I just think, is the only guy of this next generation who has sufficiently blended the ability with the mental sturdiness to where I'm actually confident in him beating a member of the big three in a really meaningful spot. I guess really just Djokovic and Rafa at this point. And obviously, Medvedev did that in the U.S. Open just last year. And I think is a better hard quarter than Rafa at this point. He's 34-5 and on hard since the U.S. Open swing began last year. Ridiculous. He won their last head-to-head meeting. I just think he should be the favorite here. And uh, betting-wise, I believe he actually is. And that makes sense to me. So that would be a lot of fun, man. If we got back-to-back Medvedev slams, obviously it's a bummer that two of the last three non-big three slams would be coming in such fields where the 2020 U.S. Open... You didn't have Rafa or Fed, and then Djokovic got kicked out in the fourth round and I think was clearly the strong favorite. And then you would have this where it's only Rafa out of the field and not having Novak Djokovic at an Australian Open is kind of going to automatically put an asterisk on some things. But whatever, that would be really fun. I mean, that would be cool if there was one clear guy who asserted himself as the most imposing challenger and, I mean, really made a push for world number one, I think that would be really cool to see. So that's sort of the overview. We've got a couple fun first rounders, Musetti, Diminar, I'm going to be excited for. Would like to see Musetti maybe make a little bit of noise in some slams this year, but that's a tough first rounder. Andy Murray going up against Basilashvili. I think that Murray is always a fun guy to see out there at this point, obviously. So no Djokovic is a major bummer. I mean, I think that it diminishes the quality of the overall tennis because you're losing the best player on the planet and maybe to a certain extent delegitimizes the results of a slam. And, you know, there's 128 guys in the draw still, but you take the clear best one out of it and 
that definitely puts a damper on some things. But still, there's so much great talent. Rafa's back, so let's be appreciative of what we have, and I think we can still really enjoy this tournament. On the women's side, I think that the most interesting aspect to me is going to be the return of Naomi Osaka, who I'm a huge fan of. I'm just really awestruck by her talent when she's at her best, and I declared, I guess after she won her first U.S. Open that I thought she was going to be a 10-time slam champ, and she's got four of them now, and she's got plenty of time left, but obviously so much of last year was disrupted for her with the mental health stuff, and when she was available on the court, she just wasn't consistently herself outside of the beginning of the year when she did win the Australian Open. So she's got a title to defend here, and right now, because of just the slippage in the rankings that she's taken due to inactivity and, again, some middling results, we're shaping up for an Osaka-Bardi fourth round. And I think there's a strong case to be made that those should be the two favorites in this tournament. I believe they are the top two betting favorites. So that's going to be really interesting. Nobody has been as consistently just really good as Ash Barty in tennis over the last three years. But I don't know if anybody has reached the ceiling, and I would argue actually nobody has, of Naomi Osaka when she's playing her best on hard court, particularly in the Australian and U.S. Open. So I kind of like Osaka there. I mean, Barty has been so good, but we've never seen her make a final at the Australian. And yes, she's only had so many chances, but Osaka's won two of her last three appearances in this field period. She leads the head-to-head between these two players, two to one on hard. So I don't know. I mean, I'm probably consistently too optimistic about Osaka because I do get captivated by the pure talent. But I just think, man, long-term, it's going to pay off. And I think she's going to win a handful more slams in her career at least. And a whole lot of those are going to come on hard. So I'm actually going to take her to win here. It probably doesn't make sense. It's a lot to ask. And I think there were a couple times last year where I asked too much of her when she was out there. But I just think if she can get past Barty, then she's done the most difficult thing. I would take her to beat Muguruza in the final. Muguruza is in that bottom half with Sabalenka, obviously another really big hitter. And they are the three and two seeds, respectively. So that would be quite a semi. I'd be pulling for that. But I just think this would be really cool. Maybe I'm thinking with my heart a little bit here. But Osaka is, to me, the best hardcore player on the planet when she is right. And hopefully she has had adequate time to recalibrate and feel good about herself. And that would be awesome. So that's my prediction there on the women's side. Osaka over Muguruza in the final. And Muguruza, maybe I should explain more. I just think she's another person who, when she's on, I mean, is exceptional and obviously made the final here back in 2020 and has had some phenomenal results as of late. So very excited for that. Pumped to see what some of the young women, Raducanu, Coco Goff can do. You know, they're both seated, I think, 17 and 18 here. So not going to have the best draws possible, but regardless, people who I think on their best day are capable of knocking off a whole lot of really high caliber players. So that would be really cool if one of them broke through and had another result here. I mean, Raducanu obviously has broken through. She's a Grand Slam champion, but you understand what I mean. Cement that result, validate that result with another really quality run. And Coco, I just root for it every single slam. So there you have it, everybody. Again, maybe not as in-depth of a pre-tournament breakdown as 
I would normally do. I also apologize for not doing like a beginning of the year predictions thing. Historically, I've done that. I've laid out like my year-end top 10 players I expected. I've gone out and predicted my preseason Grand Slam champions. Didn't get to do that. Took a little bit more of a break over the holidays and whatnot. And down the line may just be a little bit different overall this year. I did not retain my weekly radio spot just because I think that it's become a little bit difficult for me to have that kind of uh, consistent time obligation just given my schedule elsewhere. So I think it'll be easier for me to just do podcasts when I can. So it may not be every single week because of that, but still I will be trying to provide you guys with consistent content for me, particularly when I think that it is obviously needed. And I'm excited for another year of tennis. Should actually be able to go to Indian Wells this year. Very exciting for me. It's something that in all previous years of my life, pretty much I have done, but the last two that has been disrupted. So there's a lot to look forward to, even with no Novak Djokovic and the Australian great field and just another beautiful year of tennis upon us and maybe a really transitional year. Like, I don't know, man, it's got to happen at some point, right? Maybe it never will, but I think it's got to happen at some point. And on the women's side, I just hope that we get a healthier field, that we get Osaka right and that some of those young talents continue to blossom so that we can have the most entertaining product possible. That's what I'm pulling for this year. So very excited. Action starts soon. May have already started by the time that you guys are listening. And let's all drink it in and enjoy. So with that, as always, guys, thanks so much for listening. I've been Carson Brabber. This was Down the Line. Hope you've enjoyed. Hope you've enjoyed.